Welcome to episode 510 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a wonderful conversation with engineer, composer, and radio voice to the universe, John Shepard. John right now has a documentary short featured on Netflix called John Was Trying to Contact Aliens. I highly recommend it. We talk with John from his rural home in Michigan about his early days watching sci-fi television shows, his love of electronics, his grandparents' house, building and perfecting machines, his education, his radio program to the universe, UFOs, what he has learned about the universe and about humanity. We talk about his music, Strawberries Rebooted, among other things. A wonderful conversation with John Shepard this go-around. We also feature an EW essay titled Planet Earth, and we share an excerpt from Kurt Vonnegut Jr.'s brilliant novel, Breakfast of Champions. And we have a poem called Tongue. All of this, of course, will be infused, imbued, with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. John's, too. It's so nice to be with you. Let's get to it. Episode 510 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Yes. 
planet Earth. Ladies and gentlemen, all in between, or perhaps outside of these parameters you do gleam, welcome. Happy to be together with you here now, making this scene. Magenta hue sunrise, wind warm, whipping wild and steady, bare cold trees, dry crumpled leaves on the earth floor of grass green with a glaze of frost, dirt for farming vegetables like garlic and corn, tomatoes, squash, string beans, up a pole to a mythological giant above the sky so high we call the place heaven. It goes forever into neutron clusters of empty space, spinning into balls of fire at the core, with large white erudite notions of formation into infinity. We sing songs to them, scream, beg, cry, laughing crazy-like through deep enamored eyes, searching for home deeper still. Is there anybody out there? Can you see this tempestuous drone of a man? It should be all about collaboration, multitudes of love and good work day to day, then dancing earnest elation under the amazed arrangement of stars, galaxies, wide-expanding universe, as we spin on our axis short around the yellow-orange power sound, one sphere that guides us around here together and alone. Let's enjoy looking into one another's eyes beneath these blue spectrum skies while we happily roam.
Hello, John Shepard. Is that you? Yes, it is. I thought I'd better get the signal out to you here and make sure we make good connection. It is me. All right. Well, uh, it's nice to have you on Troubadours and Rock on Tour, sir. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. And uh, before we get started, let me share a little background information for the listeners. John Shepard was the engineer, visionary, and voice behind Space Cruise 1, a broadcast by Project STRAT, STRAT, an acronym, Earth Station 1. This was an ultra-powerful Maverick transmitting station, once based in rural Michigan, USA, which for nearly three decades broadcast original radio shows into outer space. The highly directional signal, according to John, reached a distance roughly twice that of the moon, and not unlike the 1970s Voyager spacecraft's, quote, golden record, shared the hope that it might be intercepted by intelligent beings from other worlds. John and his project have been featured on several TV programs, in numerous news stories, and most recently, his personal story was featured in the Netflix documentary short titled, John Was Trying to Contact Aliens. I saw this wonderful short and reached out to him about being on our show. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is very happy to have on the program, John Shepard. Again, thank you so much, John. Oh, you're so welcome. This is a pleasure and a wonderful chance to share some of my uh, experiences and areas of research, and maybe as well as my music with Ex you folks out there. Oh, yeah. You're, I forgot about that. Definitely. We're going to surround this conversation with your music. Um, I look forward to that. And before before we uh, get into some, you know, more of the uh, stuff you did and are still doing uh, as you got older, let's start with your early years. How did you end up where you are today? Well, that's a that's an interesting question. Now, I um, I started out with an interest in electronics and space and all that kind of stuff when I was a child, probably 12 years old or 10 years old. So. I always had an interest in those subjects, and there were all the uh, oh, science fiction series on television, like The Outer Limits, Star Trek, um, so many oh, uh, programs, I can't even remember them all. They were all wonderful, but Outer Limits really inspired me. I had to start asking the question, yeah, is it really possible that there's alien intelligences out there or other creatures besides us that might be living out there in space? And Of course, that whole thing of uh, flights to the moon and Neil Armstrong and the Apollo program that inspired me and uh, I, I started in 1965 67 I started building my own electronic gizmos or experimenting with converted radios and TVs and it's kind of got the hang of doing electronics so that's how I got started in the electronic side of it and then of course over the years I developed the skill and the knowledge to build far more sophisticated systems and equipment. And that's how Project Strat sort of got born in 1972 into 73. And, and Strat, the acronym, what does it stand for? Special Telemetry Research and Tracking. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so you, you did this for years. Uh, you built, started to build it uh, in your grandparents' home. Where you lived with your grandparents. And uh, it... It got so big that it took over the house, basically. 
Yes, it did. It uh, started out in the, oh, probably an 11 by 12 bedroom that I slept in, and it wasn't any room for a bed after I started building the equipment because it was floor to ceiling, wall to wall, with radar scopes, oscilloscopes, racks full of radio transmitting equipment, and kind of just got it started in the bedroom, but then it got bigger, and then it started to um, build up into the living room space, and by that time, it was like, it was getting pretty pretty good size, so it was taking over the space of the house that my grandparents, but they didn't mind. My grandfather was a tool and machine guy, he, he machinist. He taught me a lot of the skills needed to build the frameworks, the steel uh, frames for the racks to put all the equipment in, to mount it, to drill and thread all the steel and do all of that sort of thing. So he was really kind of enthusiastic because I was willing to learn. And then my grandmother was really cool about it because she was interested in this whole subject of extraterrestrial life and unidentified flying objects, what they might be. And her curiosity and insight was kind of almost mystical. I, I, not that she was into that sort of thing, but she seemed to have a, a deeper knowledge or a deeper sense of these things and took them, you know, took them as a possible, possible reality. And that was encouraging. So that's kind of how it's got going, but then later in life, uh, my grandfather passed, and then my grandmother and I pooled all of our resources, money and savings and what have you, to build a, a large addition. And they, six, I think it was 18 by 60 feet by two, sto two and a quarter stories high. It was pretty big. It was one big room with no floor, no floor in the center. And that's where Project Strat became the full power operation that it was back in the late 70s going into the 80s and even into the early 90s. We had the 1,000 watt, 150,000 volt transmitter. We were able to bump that up a little in the later 1990s. So that's where the deep space transmitter, two stories high, was assembled and powered up and was in operation for good number of years well you know when you were doing this when you were getting into all this stuff you, you were growing up in the 50s and 60s as a you know a younger person uh did you find like-minded uh peers as you know in school and in your community uh when you were doing this sort of thing or did you just keep it to yourself no it uh i didn't find very many hardly any at all because i lived in a rural community and uh I didn't go to school locally or anything. I took a correspondence course for high school. So I wasn't really in contact with a lot of people, but I had a, maybe two or three friends that were pretty pretty excited about what I was doing, and they liked it. They thought it was really interesting. But other than that, it was like uh, a lot of people would uh, drive by and see the lights through the windows of all the instruments running and all the equipment and kind of sat out there on the road watching and wondering what was going on. Sooner or later, they got curious enough to actually come up to the door and ask, you know, kind of see who, what was called the lights about. And then I'd explained it. And then they were rather either fascinated or thought, boy, what are they doing here? Is this a Russian spy station or what? <laughs> well, yeah, that goes to my next question. I'm wondering if the government ever said, hey, you know, what's, what, what are you doing? Were they ever concerned? Did they ever? They must have been. Oh, I knew a few people, and then there was the uh, Antrim County Airport uh, founder and manager that uh, one of the guys from the FAA, they were installing a 
microwave landing system at the airport. It was very new. It's something totally new uh, that just coming out. And it was kind of an ILS system, uh, instrument landing system. And at that time, one of the people that were working with the airport came out to see me to see if there was any chance that my transmitting equipment would interfere with, of course, with that landing system. And my frequencies were so far different and so far removed from anything they were using that it wasn't even an issue. Once we went over the details, it was like clear that there was no way what I was sending out was going to be uh, interfering with anything at the airport for their landing systems or communications. And that was it. That's not, I'm surprised. I'm surprised like, you know, the FBI wasn't knocking on your door or something. <laughs> no, back in those days, I guess I guess it wasn't like like it is today, where everybody's looking for some spy or looking for a terrorist under a rock or or whatever. Nowadays, it seems like everybody's surveilled to pieces. So <laughs> back then, I could do all that kind of stuff, and it didn't seem to be a well. It wasn't secretive. I wasn't doing it in secret. It was always open. People could ask about it. They were invited, matter of fact, to take tours of the lab and the research facility. So I would invite people to come and see what I was doing. I wanted people to know that I was working on trying to uh, discover some things and find out more knowledge for us. Did you you study uh, engineering formally or astronomy or anything like that? Not not formally, but I did a lot of reading and a lot of research. And, and back then, there was no Internet, at least as we know it today. So all my reading was from books and library material and that sort of thing. And people that I knew a few people like physicists and scientists uh, that would come by and talk to me. And we'd visit and go into details about the technology and space and, and all kinds of interesting subjects. Um, but most of it was self-taught. Um, no college education. I don't have any kind of formal education. I, I'll admit that right here on the air. The All my stuff was self-taught. I just learned it on my own and developed my own skills and taught myself. My grandfather taught me the machinist side of it, the mechanics, and I did learn the electronics. That's amazingly impressive, John. <laughs> it's really impressive. <laughs> uh, honestly, wow. That's uh, Kudos to you. You obviously have a passion for it, and it's a great pastime, I'm sure, right? Time goes by when you're immersed in that sort of uh, engineering and, uh, and and trying to communicate. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's, uh, that's always been a joy for me, is, uh, was building the electronic equipment. Even if I didn't get an answer from out there, that wasn't the only thing. There was the fulfillment of creating and building machines to do it, and perfecting them and experimenting with them and working on things, all kinds of things like ion projectors and high voltage amplifiers and power, large power banks of capacitors that could create tremendous impulse energy to send impulse into space. And that was fun. That was a blast. Yeah, that kept me very happy, very occupied. I was always creative, um, had inspiration from doing all that. And of course, those wonderful science fiction series that's from the past were very much an inspiration because if you recall or people do recall uh, the outer limits there was always these really fascinating banks of instruments and all this technology involved it was something that had to do with a scientific side of it a instrumented side of the research or the discovery or whatever and that 
That was great inspiration. That and just seeing all those cool flashing lights and banks of instruments with meters and gauges and high power stuff. That got me really figuring, I got to build something like this that will really do some cool things. And that was. I hear you. I I find that stuff fascinating too. Um, Now, how did you pay for all this stuff? I mean, the electricity, the equipment. I mean, you, you must have had a day job. Yeah, I did. I worked part-time. I did everything from mowing lawns to working in a kitchen and working with friends, and they'd pay me. And I just uh, was able to, somehow back in those days, it was easier. I can't explain it, uh, to come up with enough of a living. And my grandparents supported me, so that, you know, as far as food and accommodations and things like that, so that took a big burden off. The rest of it was just whatever I could earn on my own and what my grandmother was once she would contribute some or, you know, a little bit here and there, but it'd be more like a, <clears throat> like a wage for doing things around the house. So, but I was able to build so much of the equipment by hand and wire everything by hand and so on and so forth that it became a lot more cost effective, if you will. And that made it possible. Uh, but today to try to do the same thing, my goodness, you need hundreds of thousands of dollars to do what I probably did back then on twenty or thirty thousand. Yeah, it's amazingly impressive to me, and I'm I'm wondering, you know, part of what you did, you, you played music and you and you spoke. You had a radio show basically uh, that you broadcast through the equipment that you built, designed and built, and uh, you were trying to uh, you weren't trying to connect. I don't think with other folks on this planet with your radio show. You were trying to connect with beings out in the universe is that right or were there people listening to the show too on on earth or was it strictly broadcast out into the you know the stratosphere so to speak it was it was primarily designed to be broadcast vertically straight up into the ionosphere and into space yeah my main audience i was hoping was out there in space but you could pick up the signal uh, as a side field from the transmitting equipment like you could go down by the lake, which is maybe, oh, 500 to 800 feet away, and you could pick it up, hear it down there in the water. You could play some uh, pickup from one of these detectors, and you could hear it. Now, the frequencies were in the ULF band rather than in the HF or UHF band. It was a very low frequency, so it was a special receiver would be required to receive it. So who knows? Maybe out in space they just didn't have any receivers like that, but... The idea was was to send out the signal and give it a try and see what would come of it. But we sent a lot of music out. It was yeah, it turned into a pretty much like a, a radio station for music and creative culture. And so we sent a lot of uh, electronic music out, early rock and roll, progressive rock from Europe. Uh, a lot of the more obscure stuff, though, not the popular radio stuff that you hear on radio today most on most stations. It was non-commercial, believe me, <laughs> very non-commercial. We probably, we would run, after John came in, and I hired him, so to speak, as program director, he, uh, he and I put on shows that would last between 8 and 12 hours a day. So we were on, you know, keep, keeping the disc spinning and keeping the music happening, and we would play an incredible variety of avant-garde electronic music, jazz, blues, um, uh, African music, space music, just all kinds of stuff. So we kept a variety going, a cultural kind of thing. 
and kept our kept our minds open to new music all the time and brought stuff in. So we had a huge collection, like thousands of LPs, hundreds and hundreds of uh, CDs. We still do. We've got probably 4,000 CDs now or more. So we have a huge selection and used, used put it to use. <laughs> and this is uh, another John. There are two Johns involved here. That's right, John LaTrenta and myself. So between the two of us, we were really uh, keeping the, the wax spinning. <laughs> and and did, did you ever hear anything back from any entity outside of, you know, the, the planet? That, that's always the most important question anybody should ever ask. You know, it's like... I didn't hear a signal per se, but we had some close flybys of objects or UFOs. There was uh, some folks out on the lake, just out back of where we live. It's a pretty big lake. It's intermediate lake, uh, it's named. And these folks were out fishing, and they saw something come over the house and hover. And he says, man, that just freaked us out. We got, we came back into shore in kind of a hurry. We thought, what is going on over there? That's Shepherd's place, you know, so it's grandparents' place. And um, he has even come forth today and told me of, of exactly what he saw. It was like some kind of glowing orb or craft or something. He didn't know what it was exactly, but it looked like it hovered right over the house where the transmitter facilities were located. So he, he, we didn't get a signal back, but we may have got some interaction or at least some curiosity, which was the idea in the, original, in the first place, was to draw the man so that we could get electromagnetic and radiation measurements and emission fields from the objects that analyze them in a scientific manner. So it was trying to lure them into the test tube, if you will. That was the concept behind the whole thing. And this was years ago before people had the means or the ability to buy contraptions to fly around your house, right? Oh yes, there were no drones, and if the if they existed, they were probably very large, and they're probably military. And no, this this was way before that. This was in seventy three, seventy four, in the seventies. So no, this was something that uh, I would say was quite different from that. Very unlikely that it was just you know uh, normal activity from uh, the uh, <clears throat> individuals. Um, it would be, have to be military if it was anything, but this object didn't seem to impress those folks on the lake being one of ours. That was their response. That's pretty interesting. And, I, you know, that leads me to my, my next question. You know, uh, what have you learned through all of this thus far about the universe and about humanity? Great question. I love that question. Uh, I've learned a lot about humanity. The universe, I just keep never learn enough about that. I just keep learning about the humanity, it seems like, because the response of our fellow creatures to an effort like this and to the uh, whole concept of extraterrestrial intelligence is truly fascinating. You get an incredible range of impressions and ideas and <laughs> statements from fellow humans about what whether or not there's life out there or whether or not these craft represent an intelligent visitors coming to this world and so oh, you learn a lot about the human psychology and the psyche 
uh, from these experiments. So I would say I learned more about the human side of it than I did about any extraterrestrial uh, activity going on out there. Well, that's that's awesome. I mean, to to learn more about our species is very valuable and intriguing. I mean, what can you name a couple things? Can you be more specific as to what you did learn? Oh yeah, I think one of the things I learned was that there are some pretty pretty intelligent people that um, have the in science that wouldn't normally discuss such a topic, but when you actually get to know them and take the time to talk with them, they open up and they they say the possibilities are there and that there's a very strong likelihood that life could have evolved on other worlds, even intelligent life. And these are physicists, these are scientists, these are people that I've met over the years that have discussed the topic with, and it's been it's been a truly rewarding experience experience in that sense because you get to see their insights and you get to discuss more technical possibilities or methods, methodologies that might be used to travel those distances. And not only that, but you kind of get into a world of study or research where you find out that there were things that have happened in the past and are still happening that involve materials or evidence recovered from these craft or these objects that may have crashed, like in Roswell, New Mexico, and so forth. So you, you get to learn a lot of things, and you do get a lot of contacts. And I've, I've met quite a few interesting people, but, uh, and read stories by these people, too. Do, do you think um, governments on the planet hide stuff from us about extraterrestrial life and intelligence? Yes. Uh, yeah, I think there's a reason for that. Uh, the Brookings Institute put out a, oh, an advisory, you might say, or a paper on the subject, and their concerns was that if humanity was suddenly exposed to the reality that there was extraterrestrial intelligence, which is out there and maybe visiting this world, that it would cause a panic or it would cause a lot of distress or market turmoil. Um, I don't quite see it that way. It'd be more likely if they invaded us suddenly with big spacecraft, like in the movies, that yes, then it might happen that way. But as it is now, things have changed. They were covering it up. The military has been keeping it secret, and they know a whole lot more than they have ever revealed to us. And just now, with all this, uh, the Navy pilots spotting these things and that video being leaked, have we... Uh, finally maybe come to terms with uh, letting the public know that there's something going on in our skies and that there we may not be alone. There's things we cannot explain, okay? And whatever those things are, they exhibit intelligent control. They exhibit reaction to the environment. That's intelligence. Whether it's robotic, whether it's uh, uh, human, or it's something totally different. It is intelligence. It's it's reactionary, and that indicates some kind of technology, some kind of intelligence. So the obvious is, well, in the light, shall we say, right now, there is a spotlight on the fact that there's something going on. And the military and intelligence communities are obviously concerned because there are issues with our airspace and air safety and things of this nature because they are craft our own civilian flights have come in very close contact with these things. They've come across 
their flight paths. They've been seen flying right by them or right over them suddenly, you know, just these things moving very fast. And they are physical devices. They, they are craft of some kind. That's my impression. And I'm sure there's people in the know that can go into a lot more detail. Are you concerned about the possibility that there might be other life forms in the universe? Uh, that's interesting. I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say I'm concerned, but I would say it's a truly fascinating possibility, and it 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 opens up a lot of questions and a lot of ideas that you have to deal with. You have to think both culturally and technologically, and what what it means to a society like ours if some super high super intelligent. <laughs> Uh, beings came here or landed here or in, interfered with what we do here or what that would mean for us as a, as a society uh, you know civilization because we all know what happened when <laughs> higher intelligent people if you will invaded like in North America and so on when you come into a place and you've got all this armies and you've got all this stuff if you invade something somebody uh, you tend to cut get into a situation where you make it conquered. <laughs> well, I don't think that's the case here. I'm not thinking they're going to invade this world and such. I don't buy that. But I do keep an, always keep an open mind and keep an open ear to what's going on because who knows? So we, we should be prepared. We should be psychologically prepared and even militarily prepared in case something does arise that we uh, maybe didn't anticipate in the beginning. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, you know, we, we don't treat our own selves, you know, our own species uh, well enough. So how would we act toward uh, an extraterrestrial, you know, uh, group of, of uh, individuals coming here? Probably pretty ugly, I suppose, I'd guess. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it could evolve into something pretty pretty unpleasant. Um, it, it's It's always this kind of thing where... Uh, even with the uh, migration across the border, I mean, look at the kind of uh, kind of dis dislike and almost hatred, almost that comes out of that. I mean, just for the fact that we're we have people coming, migrants coming into our country, and that that does not bother me as much as it does other people. I just see it as a transitional thing, and they are human for one thing. They're, they're us. That's right. <laughs> but it's just the idea. See, yeah, exactly, and. But you deal when you're dealing with something maybe that's different, uh, beings that are not totally like us, but yet share some features and share certain the intelligence factor. Then, then it becomes we become more apprehensive. I think that's in human nature to be apprehensive of the unknown, and I think that's exactly what we'd be dealing with is something pretty much unknown, except for those in the know inside the. the in, intelligence communities or government or whatever that know a lot more about this and have not revealed all the facts. And I, I like how you said uh, when so-called uh, higher intelligence uh, groups came here onto this continent, so-called exactly, you know, we oftentimes believe we're so much better, so much more sophisticated in the way that we look at life and, and the world. And uh, it's, that's arrogant and Oftentimes, just plain wrong, right? Uh, so <laughs> yes. I, I like the way you put that. And we are all just human. Um, and the bring, bringing that to another level of other beings elsewhere, I mean, who knows? 
I don't know. I have no clue. I've never seen anything or, or heard anything outside of, you know, what's in my community, basically. But if if other uh, living beings were to come here, I don't know if they'd be better than us, kinder than us, worse than us. Uh, and like most folks, you don't believe it if you don't see it. But at the same time, you realize how much there is out there. It's infinite. How could there not be, you know, other life forms? That's the... That's the the big quandary, right? When you're logically trying to understand things. Yes, yes, it is. And the very fact that uh, it's it's an awful big space, it seemed like quite a waste to just have all that space and nothing out there but a bunch of empty planets and worlds and stuff. It's pretty, but I, it seems to me there's a lot more potential use for all that. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I look at it, yeah, I look at it as, hey, the, the odds are so in favor of life of what of many kinds being out there that it's it's almost like it's a no-brainer at least for me i after all these years of study and research into the topic and and talking with people that's involved in, in this area of work you know it's like what well, it just doesn't make sense why why have something all that massive stuff out there have the universe the galaxies and everything with nothing in there alive it's just all those pretty stars and planets and gas giants and so on that's great but who's going to benefit or what's the what's the point you know if this all is out there and there's no life boy we are sure alone aren't we yeah that's crazy you know obviously you're someone who has explored and who continuously reflects on existence well, all you know, you've been around for several decades. What have you learned about yourself through all of this? Oh, that's a that's a good question. I like that. Um, oh, I've learned a lot. I've learned to keep an open mind, most importantly, and I've learned what I can do and can't do as a human, as a life form of this type. But it can also say that I become more visionary and seen the things of the future and clear images and impressions of things to come and it's sort of like writing a science fiction story about the future but the funny thing is is when it comes true it's no longer fiction you're looking at the present you're looking at the things that have come to pass and i was seeing a lot of the stuff that we're seeing now way back when i was doing the project and when i was young you know you just kind of get these visionary impressions that's kind of how I operate. I see things in my mind and I see things and I understand them. And I know that there are many things coming yet that are just going to blow our socks off um, and maybe even melt them in the process. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, besides the Netflix short documentary, it's 16 minutes long. Uh, and every, anybody who has Netflix, I highly recommend you watch it. It's titled, John Was Trying to Contact Aliens. What else is going on? Any new projects? Are you kind of just hanging out right now? Do you know, taking a break during the winter? Oh, no! I'm finding plenty to do, and with the music, I'm creating and composing, uh, recording, and working on music production. So I have been keeping very busy doing music and spots for programs, and doing even working with a couple of chaps out of. Uh, over in the UK that uh, uh, doing uh, uh, theater and film. I'm working on some soundtrack music for them. As a matter of fact, I sent them 
seven or eight tracks to work through to see what they uh, and they love them. They they were very very interested in working with that. And it's called uh, the the film they're working on or the production is called uh, uh, Strawberries Rebooted, and it was like an invasion film of these aliens, and strawberries were part of the the form they took or something. It's very interesting. It's a it's a theater play. A film it's really interesting it's very unique and it's in the works so I, hopefully I'll be see, getting a chance to see it, see it here soon so I'm, I'm contributing my music talents for that project and I'm working on many many uh, albums <laughs> my goodness I've got on Bandcamp I have well over a hundred and some albums uh, some are singles but I have lots lots of full albums too so I'm always, always working on music. Even in the winter here in the studio, I'll spend uh, generally a week. Uh, during a week, I'll put in maybe, oh, 12 hours. I might work on something for two or three hours a day or work, you know, a couple of days, I put four hours in, something like that, and, and work on ideas. And they come to me pretty quick. I just, prolific, when I get going, I just can just create all kinds of interesting and tr- new material, so... Well, and what type of music? How would you categorize it? Uh, ambient, electronic, soundtrack, um, even some uh, EDM or oh, psych music, a little bit of psych music, which is more like psychedelic, spacey stuff. Um, I do all kinds of stuff, but I primarily like to do cinematic kind of film score music, uh, sync tracks and stuff like that. But I love doing uh, ambient and space electronica uh, it's called, often called a berlin school style electronic music so it's pretty much all electronic although i use acoustic effects and sometimes acoustic instruments but primarily it's all done with synthesizers physical synthesizers and electronic signal generators and tone generators and um, all kinds of effects units so i do a lot of live mixing and recording and produce some music live, so it's mostly no, not much multi-tracking, if any. And if people wanted to check out uh, your music or anything else you're working on, how how would they do that? Uh, just look me up on Bandcamp. It's John Scott Shepherd Music um, Bandcamp, and that's probably the easiest place. I also on Spotify with Jimmy Zarpas, who I've uh, collaborated with, and we put out some very interesting, very jazzy, electronic, almost progressive rock, uh, electronic music. And, of course, John Scott Shepard, and that's S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D. And But if you look me up, oh, I'm all over the place. I, you can Google this, Google me, and it'll show up. I'm sure it'll show up. Excellent. We're just about out of time this go-round. John, I'd love to talk with you again. Any closing yes. thoughts you'd like to share with the listeners? Yes, I think the most important thing I can say is keep an open mind. Always be looking for those answers because they're out there. But it takes a lot of patience and open-mindedness to find those answers. And believe me, the rewards are there for those that look. Well said. Thank you, John Shepard. Pleasure meeting you. Pleasure talking with you. I look forward to talking with you again. Yes, let's do this again. I would love to. Thank you so kindly. Take care, sir. You too. Bye-bye and thanks.
merging into space and merging into the universe. It's all part of a greater consciousness. Moving into conscious space, merging in the matrix. Changing forms, merging into the matrix. Consciousness universal. An excerpt from Chapter 16 of Kurt Vonnegut Jr.'s masterpiece, Breakfast of Champions. And the peanut butter eaters on Earth were preparing to conquer the shaz butter eaters on the planet in the book by Kilgore Trout. By this time, the Earthlings hadn't just demolished West Virginia and Southeast Asia, They had demolished everything, so they were ready to go pioneering again. They studied the shaz butter eaters by means of electronic snooping and determined that they were too numerous and proud and resourceful ever to allow themselves to be pioneered. So the earthlings infiltrated the ad agency which had the shaz butter account, and they buggered the statistics in the ads. 
They made the average for everything so high that everybody on the planet felt inferior to the majority in every respect. And then the Earthling armored spaceships came in and discovered the planet. Only token resistance was offered here and there because the natives felt so below average. And then the pioneering began. Trout asked the happy manufacturer's representative what it felt like to drive a galaxy, which was the name of the car. The driver didn't hear him, and Trout let it go. It was a dumb play on words, so that Trout was asking simultaneously what it was like to drive the car and what it was like to steer something like the Milky Way, which was 100,000 light years in diameter and 10,000 light years thick. It revolved once every 200 million years. It contained about 100 billion stars. And then Trout saw that a simple fire extinguisher in the galaxy had this brand name, Excelsior. As far as Trout knew, this word meant higher in a dead language. It was also a thing a fictitious mountain climber and a famous poet kept yelling as he disappeared into a blizzard up above. And it was also the trade name for wood shavings, which were used to protect fragile objects inside packages. Why would anybody name a fire extinguisher Excelsior? Trout asked the driver. The driver shrugged. Somebody must have liked the sound of it, he said. Trout looked out at the countryside, which was smeared by high velocity. He saw this sign. Visit Sacred Miracle Cave, 162 miles. And he turned up the radio. I wake up feeling nothing, camouflage the way from the sky. I sit at my piano, wonder the wild rip. In the lilacs day In the lilacs drank the water Marking the slow, slow, slow Passing of time I get so angry, baby At something you might say I dream about an awful stranger Work my way through the day I run it like a silent movie Running like a violent song, running like a voice compelling, so right it can't be wrong. I'm a broken record, write it in the dustbin. I fill myself back up like I used to do. And if my bones are made of delicate sugar, I won't end up anywhere good without you. Everything I want. I'm a broken record, right in the 
tongue. Door opens dry, wood rubs, and clicks into place. The clock clicks into awake, out of bed, not much rest, despite the tincture drops dripped under my tongue last night. Always looking for happiness and fun. To be wise and thoughtful, calm, vigorous, handsome, and young. I saw a rabbit by the covered grill hop away yesterday. Maybe spring is coming to us soon. And there you have it, episode 510 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, John Shepard. I also would like to thank author Kurt Vonnegut Jr., and these musical artists, Thelonious Monk, Weezer, John Scott Shepard, Jamie Zarfus, Waxahachie, 
Branford Marsalis and Terence Blanchard, too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care of yourself.